Every part of your vehicle serves a purpose, especially your tires. When they aren't right, it makes a big difference in safety. So, find great deals on trusted brands of automotive and specialty tires for farm machinery, utility vehicles, and more at Blaine's Farm and Fleet. Welcome to Fishers and Farmers, Neighbor to Neighbor. I'm Pam Yonke. This is a conversation about the efforts of the Fishers and Farmers Partnership for the Upper Mississippi River Basin. Now, that's a self-directed group of non-government organizations and farms working together to protect, restore, and enhance more than 30,000 miles of rivers and streams of the Upper Mississippi River Basin. Today, we go to Joe Davies County, Illinois, where the Apple Plum Watershed is. That's a 950,000-acre area that includes parts of southwest Wisconsin, northeast Iowa, and northwest Illinois. All that land drains to the Mississippi River. What's also interesting is around the Galena area, they're working with karst topography and wooded bluff lands that are near the Mississippi River and draw plenty of tourists and recreational landowners. The story in Joe Davies County started with an interesting partnership of its own. Back in 2016, Beth Baranski had interest in local land and water issues. She attended a Fishers and Farmers Partnership workshop where she met farmers and watershed coordinators, and the spark was ignited. Now, initially, Beth Baranski was a part of the League of Women Voters and was working specifically on different land and water resource management in Joe Davies County. Once she'd met friends with the Fishers and Farmers Workshop, it took off. Today, they have the Joe Davies County Soil and Water Health Coalition. Beth, tell me a little bit more about your interesting background and why such a passion and interest for soil and water conservation in Joe Davies County. Sure, Pam, and thanks for having me. Um, I started working on the water quality side of things, and I was developing a watershed plan for the Lower Galena River, and that watershed is about 40% um, in agriculture, and I really wanted to involve the farmers in the conversation I became uh, aware of the concept of a farmer-led group when I attended a Fishers and Farmers uh, workshop, and I've been attending those every year, and they're very inspirational. Um, And so learning about the farmer-led group, we decided to to form one to help advise the watershed planning process, and then that evolved into a countywide farmer-led group, which is the Soil and Water Health Coalition. Tell me about your background, Beth. How did... uh you approached the content. Did you understand most of it? What was your background? Uh, well, my degree is in architecture, and I really didn't know anything about agriculture. And I was on the county board, and there was a controversial issue about a dairy being located in our county. And I actually became um, most interested during that, trying to better understand the hydrogeology of our area. We live in a unique area uh, that has uh, karst bedrock, and so we have a lot of interaction between surface and groundwater. So I came from the conversation from that water quality side, but I knew how important the agricultural community was, and basically I ended up meeting a few individuals, uh, producers who were really interested in having the conversation too. Everybody um, has concerns about the nutrient loss reduction requirements that are, that are kind of marching towards us as we try to reduce the dead zone in the Gulf, but I quickly learned that Farmers much prefer to talk about soil health, and I became fascinated with it, and, and I'm a convert. I mean, I've come to the place where I really think focusing on soil health will 
really address many of our water quality issues and a, and a great many other issues as well. So I have learned so much from them and continue to, um, and I'm really enjoying the whole process. Wonderful. That's great to hear Beth Bransky along with us. She's down in Joe Davies County, Illinois, where they are spearheading a county soil and water health coalition that started back in 2017. So tell me a little bit about the progress that's been made since the uh, inception of the coalition, Beth. Uh, Is that uh, non-farm community that is impacted by water quality and conservation practices paying attention? Are they getting their arms around what farmers are doing? I think it's a slow process, and a lot of our uh, initial work, I think, has been really um, establishing the foundation of the coalition and trying to get more farmers involved in it. But I find myself constantly serving as a bridge between the agricultural, uh, with the producers I'm working with, and with others that I, I come in contact with that maybe would define themselves more as environmentalists. And I'm, I'm pleased to be able to explain to them the hard work that's being done by the farmers to explore options for, for practices that will not only improve their soil health and their economic um, bottom line, but it also will help water quality. Let's talk a little bit about one item you mentioned at the outset, and that is that hydrology is a... Uh, <laughs> Challenging science, to say the least. Uh, we want it to be science-based. Uh, we are trying to do our best with a lot of farmer-led demonstrations. How are you trying to, I guess we'd say, better understand the hydrology in your area and the practices that are working? Tell me about that collaboration. Sure. Um, I've been doing a lot of work with scientists, uh, particularly from the Prairie Research Institute down at the University of Illinois, the Geological and the Water Surveys. And over the past 10 years, we've been doing different projects where we're doing spring and well sampling throughout the county. We've identified karst features, the sinkholes, crevices, um, and and documenting those, um, and really putting together a database uh, that, that will help everybody better understand the landscape that we live in. And I think knowing that, it helps us um, define those practices that really make a difference. Uh, And we're learning all the time, and there are no definitive answers, but one of the things I sort of feel is that in our area, the infield practices are particularly important, and our farmer-led group has been focusing primarily on no-till and cover crops and really experimenting with the cover crop opportunities and options that will work best in our area. So being the more we understand about that hydrogeology, I think the better we'll be able to um, dedicate resources to solving the problems that we face um, in an efficient way. I think some of your observations as far as how communities are changing and uh, the responsibility that any landowner, including farmers, has to water quality are heard by a lot of communities. As a watershed warrior yourself, Beth, Talk to me about what you suggest other communities that hear this message that feel their time is now to either establish this kind of coalition or a a watershed group. Can you give them some pointers on maybe the best way to go about that? I can only really say what my experience was, and I think it really comes down to individuals taking the time to do the work to understand each other's positions and building trust between individuals and, and, and having the conversations that need to be had. Um, 
I'd say, I mean, the biggest thing I think is building trust. And I really think that's a one-on-one endeavor. How have elected officials responded to some of this uh, volunteerism and in the field? Uh, some of the information you've been able to generate, Beth, are they paying attention? Um, do they understand it? Uh, are they using it as guidance potentially? How, what's their reaction been? Um, I think it's, it's, uh, doing pretty well. We really started this whole process with a countywide water resource management plan, and that was uh, we that we completed in 2016 and took it to uh, the county, the municipalities, and the townships. And the county board adopted it. The nine of the ten municipalities adopted it, and several of the, the townships. So it's getting time to uh, update that and bring it out to them again. But I think we, we've tried very hard to make sure that the elected officials understand what's going on. Um, and my hope is that as they start approaching comprehensive planning efforts and look at their land use um, ordinances and things, they will uh, begin to incorporate some of this uh, thinking that is being more and more broadly supported by the residents of Joe Davis County. And we've got one of your strong farmer leaders you've partnered with coming up. Thank you, Beth Bransky, Secretary of Joe Davis Soil and Water Health Coalition, which includes the Apple Plum Watershed, 950,000 acres strong with parts of southwest Wisconsin, northeast Iowa, northwest Illinois, making up that landmass that drains to the Mississippi River. Fishers and Farmers, Neighbor to Neighbor, brought to you in part by Saddle Butte Ag. Joining us now, T.J. Cardis from Saddle Butte Ag. T.J., how did you get so connected with these projects that are dedicated to protecting, restoring, and improving our rivers and streams? So I got to meet Ron Eltoff. He's our rep down at FNM, Illinois. Uh, at a farm show down in Iowa, the Iowa Power Show, and just hit it off with him. I was working for another company at the time, uh, really hit it off with him, and they're looking for a northern rep, and he felt I would really fit into the situation. I was so glad to get hooked up with this company, Pam. It's a family-run, family-owned business. We we all act like we're family. We're, we're allowed to go out and make decisions and do a lot of stuff on our own. We've got a great core of people backing us up. So you talk about our reps. we got Ron Eltoff down at Effingham, Wade Culver down at Effingham, and Brian Wheeling up in Princeville, Illinois, and then myself here in southern Minnesota. Super company to work with because we're very focused on making sure you succeed in what you're trying to do with the cover crops. You know, and trying to succeed in 2021 is just going to be as challenging as it was in 2020. Talk to me about how you're approaching educating people on forage and cover crops, TJ, that might be new or might have questions about forage and cover crops. So a couple of different ways, Pam, is one is having a great broadcast with a, with a company like you that we get out on a, on a broadcast and then a, on a podcast, which has been terrific for us to work with. I'm really appreciative of the Fisher and Farmer Network of tying us all together and making this happen. This is first step. The other part is we've started doing some Zoom 101 meetings. We're going to start those at the end of January. Um, where we actually get, you know, send it out to some SWCDs and RCS, private industry. We get together, we do a PowerPoint on Zoom and, and get guys educated on, okay, now we've got the cover crop seeded in the fall. 
Here's what we need to start looking at for the winter months to get prepared with herbicides, uh, picking different varieties, talking about termination. If it stays dry in the spring, when do we terminate? If it stays wet, when do we terminate? If it gets out of control because it did stay wet, what 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 are the what are going to be our protocols going into spring? And we can do a lot of those kind of things by Zoom, small group meetings like I talked about last time. We go to guys' shops, we sit around, we social distance, we wear our masks, set up a TV, be able to do some PowerPoints there. Fun part is right now, as of last week, we were told that the Iowa Power Show, second, third, and fourth of of uh, February is going to go on, and we'll, we'll have our booth there like we always are, so stop by if you get down in the area. So we're starting to start to go out a little bit, which is great. We're going to test the waters, but we have this virtual side that we can work with will be the no-till conference next week will be at pfis two weeks from now doing virtual conferences have virtual uh booths there where we can you can reach out to us reps and talk to us so we're trying to use as much of the social media and the virtual side as we can to keep the education going okay now we got the crop in the ground or we're thinking about something in the spring where do we go from here on seed selection herbicides and that kind of stuff T.J. Cardas is along with us, one of the great staff members with Saddle Butte Ag, your forage and cover crop seed location. He's out of Minnesota, but he makes a lot of trips into Wisconsin. And like we said, T.J., keeping our fingers crossed that the vaccine rollout continues to gain momentum and that there's more and more uh, courage to try to step up and get these face-to-face meetings going. How can people stay connected with Saddle Butte Ag or reach out to you or Brian or any of the staff? So you can go on our website. You can do. You can Google a couple different ways. You can Google Saddle Butte. We can Google BioTill. BioTill will take you to our website. That's one we like you to Google if you want to. Take you to the BioTill 360 Forage website and the BioTill line, which is our cover crop. You go on there and you you, you go through the website. And you'll find all of us reps, our phone numbers, our emails. Uh, you can email me at TJ Curtis at SaddleBute.com, where my phone number is 507-339-1742. We don't ever leave a grower hanging. We're always sitting here waiting to, waiting to help you out. So those are a couple ways you can get a hold of us, or you can call out to the main office, and they'll direct you to the, to the rep in your area that you need to talk to. Excellent. Thank you for the time, TJ Cardis with Saddle Butte Ag, one of our partners helping to make fishers and farmers neighbor-to-neighbor a reality. Don't forget their website, SaddleBute.com. And now we turn our attention to a farmer that's been in Joe Davies County basically his entire life. He's been farming for 45 years. Greg Thorne started with conventional cropping systems and then in the 1970s started to go no-till on his hay ground. Today he's got 2,200 acres using no-till, cover crops, and non-GMO practices on his land. Now, Greg, 45 years is a lot of ground to cover. Why don't you tell me about what you're most proud of and working on going into 2021's growing season. Our main project now, and we've grown into this, is we're wanting to plant corn into perennial crops, and the perennial crops would be legumes, so we can supply nitrogen to that corn crop in a possibly continuous corn crop situation. We'll have the diversity of the of the uh Nitrogen fixing legumes will have the uh, diversity of the uh, corn being a grass. Uh, we uh, we don't have that figured out yet, but it's very interesting. We're using some non-conventional legumes uh, to do this with, and uh, we're getting. I think we're getting closer. And with this, we are using some 60-inch row corn that um, we put different mixes uh, up to a 
10 and, and up to a 13, 14 different way mix in last spring. And then we're, we're back, we're actually as of today yet, and we have, uh, I think probably the weather holds, we'll probably have grazing for feeder calves that we move daily in our cow calf operation. We, we move them about every three or four days, but, um, we haven't, we haven't fed any hay to those yet. And they look great. Um, we wean these cattle, these cows away from their calves, um, across the hot wire fence. And the only difference was the cows and calves were on the same field that the calves stayed on. We moved the cows to a different cover crop field. And the only difference there was we took mama away from them. And it was the easiest weaning of calves I've ever had in my life. Hmm. And they, they just, they didn't miss a beat. Yeah, everybody fried around for three or four days like you normally do. But it's the neatest thing with these calves. Um, and we've, we've, going backwards, we've actually um, moved these cows and calves as a group since the, the last week of September. And then we weaned them. They were later weaned because of different things going on. But we didn't wean them, I think, till the end, right around Thanksgiving, I guess, or before Thanksgiving. And um, so they were used to being moved every day. They knew us. They knew the truck. They're very tame. The cows are too. They always have been. But uh, it's very interesting going out and watching them every day and seeing what they're doing, how they're utilizing it. And uh, we actually worked the calves about 10 days after we weaned them uh, through a shoot system with a scale on the farm. Um, and we're going to revaccinate here in another couple days here and when it warms up again and you know we we're we average like 675 on these these wean calves there was uh spring calves so we're, we're pleased with the weights they're healthy um you know you take them away from the field you put them in a barn you change all their feed stuff you have all that stress on them um it just compounds issues you might say mm-hmm. it's very, very interesting very very um simplistic what's been done here so I, I'm just I'm just tickled to death, just tickled to death, and we're running co- somewhat cost analysis on that also. Um, right now, uh, one fellow working for me kind of did it in his head, and he's figuring that the value of the forage out there on a daily move for the acres and the animals, and figuring seventy five cents a head a day, which is relatively cheap to feed these animals, it figures out to be about two hundred dollars an acre value back to that land. And that's that's pretty huge if you can utilize, you know, a number of acres that way. So I, I can't help it. I got to ask you, where where has this system been tripped up then? Because it sounds like at least initially it's doing real well. Where do you kind of get tripped up? My my there again. My issue is going to sixty inch row corn timing of the, of interseeding these cover crops. Um, we've we've pushed the gamut on a lot of different things. Uh, we've had a a, a, a lot lower, a too low of a corn yield because we actually uh, try, you know, trying different things in different fields, we've actually seeded cover crop the day after we planted corn. And one thing we're going to do next year is we're actually, and we seed, actually seed those cover crops with a John Deere uh, no-till drill, it's a low, their low-disturbance drill, and no what we're going to do next year is we're going to let that corn get up at least two to three leaf spades before we put our cover crop. And then we're just going, going, going with the tractor and drill and drill because it's, it's equipment we do have. We did that in a test plot and we've had very good luck with that this, uh, this past spring. Um, it's a timing thing. It's, uh, of course we, we have to watch what we use for herbicides. We actually are 
all non-GMO corn and beans. Uh, we do not use any insecticide, even on continuous corn, and we, we plant seed that it has zero seed treatment on, corn and beans all. So we're, we're in the, the soil, deep into the soil health and the regenerative end. And we, we want to, and it, you know, I, I'm not saying everybody can do this or wants to do this, but this is what we're trying to do. And our soil, soil structure is, is very, very good. It's very aggregated, just like everyone else that does these similar things. Um, is, uh, the soil retention is good. We try to keep the ground covered all, you know, pretty much all year round, either with residue or living crops. We actually have, um, I think we've got cover crop on all of our corn and bean ground except 55 acres this year that was not covered. And actually, we're going to move the cows there yesterday or tomorrow to um, clean up that field. You know, there's been this philosophy and discussion that uh, if all of the the years and years that you've uh, spent uh, protecting the land, protecting the soil, working on soil profile, soil organic health, which ultimately helps our water, you know, now... Uh, communities, state government, federal agencies, state agencies are now starting to sniff around that they may want to write regulations or write administrative rules to tell you how to do this. What's your opinion on that approach, Greg? And how do you uh, mentor young farmers that don't see it as their responsibility to get started on trying something? Actually, I've talked to other farmers for the last number of years, and there's kind of a consensus that what what I'm doing and what we're doing as our group, and and the more of the I'm going to use the word regenerative farming, is that it's going to take a generation, or maybe two, depending where how how old the families are or, or the the elder in the family. These these young people are more apt to do these kind of things. They just are because they're, they're reading. They're you know social media is completely different than the, the words dad and grandpa, and um, this is something that's been is is common to them. When I was when I was young, there was nothing like this, or very 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 little of this. It always interests me the one thing I did see, but I think these young ones are going to be able to take this on and move forward with it a lot quicker than someone that's in their 50s and 60s because, of course, they're getting towards the end of their farming career, and basically they're just not going to change. That's how it is. I'm, I've been successful this long. I, why would I want to do anything else? So when it's the next generation, the one coming up behind them, I think they'll be the, the, the step ahead. And as far as getting the regulation from government, um, even with the carbon credit situation, I, I'm very leery on that. Um, I haven't, I haven't, and I'm sure there may be something out there that is uh, viable, but I don't know as of today if they're even close on this carbon, carbon credit uh, situation. And if the government gets in and regulates things, uh, the, let's say the regenerative farming practice uh, situation, uh, there's a huge learning curve to be taken uh, care of yet, and I do not think that they can mandate that. I, if they do, I, it will be not good. 
And that is why we're talking with you, Greg Thorne, because that's what Fishers and Farmers is all about, being proactive, protecting, restoring, and enhancing our waterways before government regulation. Thank you, Greg Thorne, lifelong resident of Joe Davies County and farming for more than 45 years on 2,200 acres using no-till, cover crops, non-GMO practices, and his beef herd to protect the resources. I want to thank all of my guests today at Joe Davies County, where the Apple Plum Watershed is. Beth Baranski, that non-farm observer that got things started and is now the secretary of the Joe Davies Soil and Water Health Coalition. Also, Greg Thorne, who you just heard, has been there all his life and wants to protect the resources for the next generation. And special thanks also to T.J. Cardis from Saddle Butte Ag, our partner in making the Fisher and Farmers Neighbor to Neighbor a possibility. Until next time, that is Fishers and Farmers Neighbor to Neighbor, brought to you in part by Saddle Butte Ag, an effort to have conversation on flexible collaborative relationships between landowners, agriculture, and conservation organizations to empower landowners to act for themselves and the greater good. More details available online, fishersandfarmers.org. Don't miss our next edition of Fishers and Farmers Neighbor to Neighbor. Be sure and sign up for our podcast so you'll receive an alert. Thank you again to Saddle Butte Ag, our partners. I'm Farm Director Pam Yonke.